This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Remember the old dot matrix printers from the 70s and 80s? Then came the early laser printers. And today, high-speed laser printers. But we're moving beyond one-dimensional printing today to 3D printing. We'll learn about a boy from Zimbabwe whose smile was saved with help from 3D printing, and a kitten named Sonic who has a new lease on life thanks to the technology. We'll also learn how 3D printing helps children who are blind use tactile books to take in the world, and how printers may one day build ice homes on Mars. First, Chuck Hall is co-founder of South Carolina-based 3D Systems. Hall, who grew up in Colorado, is widely considered to be the father of 3D printing. His company's new healthcare facility is in Littleton. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. We'll talk about how you came up with the idea for 3D printing in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about a patient who recently benefited from the 3D printing technology that you've developed. His name is Blessing, and when he was nine, his face was severely damaged by a landmine in Zimbabwe. Here's an excerpt from a video about Blessing's story. Blessing, out of his curiosity, picked up a detonator and unfortunately exploded in his face. With his situation, there's been a lot of ridicule. Words are used, monster, and you know things that aren't kind. Your engineers worked with doctors to help with the reconstruction of his face. How did 3D printing allow doctors to successfully do that? Yeah, we we, uh, use a a procedure in 3D printing uh, called uh, precision surgical planning. And uh, first it has to do with uh, carefully and exactly analyzing all the um, uh, 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 CAT scans and MRI data and so forth to exactly construct the uh, underlying bones. Blessing's case, he uh, he needed a new, actually needed a new jaw. His lower jaw was taken out in that explosion. So uh, 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 this, then this our, our team in uh, Colorado designed the tooling and the fixtures to actually guide the doctors to uh, uh, cut a section out of his tibia, out of his leg, that was big enough for this jaw, and then another set of fixtures to uh, 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 cut and shape this uh, this piece of bone uh, to go to make it the shape of a jaw and then uh, a surgical team in San Diego uh, implanted this along with you know the procedure that was developed by our team in Colorado and uh, and and basically made a made a new jaw for uh, for this young man and you're close with with blessing now aren't you uh yeah he's a friend he um, uh, he actually came to our new facility in, uh, in Littleton and helped us uh, open that facility we had previously been in Golden and I met him there. Uh, since then, I've uh, you know talked to him a few times. He lives in uh, uh, Boise. He's going to engineering school, so I've gone up and visited him. Just a wonderful guy. So for anyone who's not seen a 3D printer, it may be hard to, to picture somebody printing something that could be used to, to reconstruct a face or help reconstruct a face. So, so give us a picture. If I were watching a 3D printer in action, what would I see? <laughs> Well, you probably wouldn't see much. It's uh, you know, if you're if you're an engineer, you would uh, you would probably uh, uh, dig how it works. But most people, it looks like a, a box sitting there, uh, slowly working away. 
So when you were first envisioning 3D printing, what was the need you saw for this technology? I mean, since necessity is the mother of, of invention. Sure. Uh, this was way back in the uh, uh, 1980s, and uh, the problem we had back then was uh, getting uh, was designing pl- uh, plastic parts, parts that were going to be molded. And uh, it just took forever uh, between when you had a design finished and, uh, uh, you know, tool makers and injection molders and so forth gave you the, uh, the, the first part. It could be lots of weeks, even months. And so this was slowing down that whole design process. And uh, so I, I envisioned the first 3D printer as a way to make prototype plastic parts. And, and uh, what were the reactions it. from people when you told me you were developing something like that? Uh, well... <laughs> It was kind of a new idea, so most of the reactions were, uh, uh, you know, people didn't understand why it would be, uh, why it would be needed and what it would do. Uh, fortunately, there were a few uh, uh, industry uh, uh, visionaries that, that understood, it, especially in the automotive industry, and uh, and we got going with the process. And you discovered this this printing process kind of in your spare time, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I worked at a, a company in, uh, in California as the engineering manager, and the, the president of the company didn't want me doing uh, silly projects like this. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I convinced them to, to at least let me work in a, in a lab in the back in my spare time and evenings and weekends and so forth. And so I did it mostly all by myself, really. And you, you mentioned earlier something about car parts. Uh, so you were actually th- printing 3D car parts? Sure. So, you know, we invented the process and ultimately started the company 3D Systems, the first uh, 3D printing company. And uh, our first customers, uh, first big customers were the automotive companies in uh, in Detroit. And at that time, they were having a huge problem with uh, how long it took them to design cars and the quality of the cars and so forth. So they were uh, really interested in technology to help do that. So we ended up uh, developing equipment that printed uh, basically all the first article plastic parts for cars and, and a lot of the casting patterns and other tooling for, uh, for prototyping cars. So how did the 3D printing process make it easier for them to design cars? Is, is the, the tightness and, and the fit that we see, to, see in today's cars kind of because of the 3D printing process? Yeah, the, I think the overall quality of cars has just improved tremendously uh, uh, since, those, since those days. And, and a lot of it is uh, 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 both the 3 dimensional computer graphics capability that cars company car companies have and their ability to uh, to print these parts car parts out find what works what doesn't work quickly redesign them and and get the designs done quickly and good so how were these products like cars designed before the the 3d printing i mean they they must have had some process yeah so of course in those days we actually had blueprints and then uh and not uh, computer uh design and and then a whole big core of uh, uh, pattern makers and tool makers and so forth that converted those into the the, the soft tooling and hard tooling that take, it took to uh, to make cars. So it was a very uh, labor intensive uh, and uh, and lengthy process. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking 3D printers today. I'm speaking with Chuck Hall. He's considered to be the father of 3D printing. I want to go back to blessing. For a second, uh, your your Littleton office focuses on healthcare, and we heard about uh, Blessing's facial reconstruction surgery. What are some other things three D printing allows doctors to do now that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise? 
Well, there's just a, a whole host of procedures that, 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 that can be done when you uh, increase the precision of the surgery and, the, and kind of the, the surgical team's ability to uh, envision, envision the bone structure and, and practice the surgery ahead of time before they actually do it. Uh, probably the first uh, really impressive, to me, uh, surgery was the separation of a conjo conjoined twins. So these are babies that are part of their bodies joined together at birth. Right. And uh, so there was a, gosh, must have been 10 years ago now, uh, I lost track, uh, a surgery uh, at University of Houston Hospital of uh, twins that were uh, joined at the top of their head. And uh, uh, our guys worked to, uh, to develop the surgical procedure to, uh, to, to separate those twins. And so they're now, you know, two healthy young boys uh, separated. So you're able to use 3D printing models and things to kind of work through the procedure before it actually took place in an actual human being. That's right. So if you visit your Littleton facility, what you see are dozens of engineers sitting in front of their computers, and they're manipulating these 3D images of different patients, and they're on the phone, maybe with a doctor, who's going to ultimately perform the surgery. Uh, talk about how that works. It seems you can be doing something here in Littleton, but be talking to people across the country. <laughs> Uh, sure. Well, it's just a normal video conferencing, uh, uh, and then the, the team in Littleton uh, you know, does all of the uh, surgical design. Uh, the, the the doctor in the hospital su supply the you know again the CAT scan, MRI scan, and so forth data. Uh, the team in Colorado extracts that into the bone structures, and and uh, uh, and then what's the surgical plan to uh, uh, to correct whatever the problem the patient has? It could be anything from a a gunshot wound to the face, or uh, uh, somebody just with a birth defect in their in, in their palate, and so forth. So there's a whole bunch of procedures that uh, that this team works through. Uh, so they work through that process, then get on the phone or the video conference with the surgical team uh, and review it and uh, and perfect it. And ultimately, uh, 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 there'll be some you know 3D printed parts and instructions and workflows sent to the team, and they practice and do the surgery. So when you, you invented this product in the early 80s, the 3D printing technology, did you ever think that this would be its use today? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, it, uh, w when I invented the technology, it was for this uh, uh, prototyping application for plastic parts. But it wasn't too long after that, you know, after we started the company and got into 3D printing, that uh, people around the country and around the world started uh, thinking of uh, uh, better applications, new applications. And the healthcare thing was fairly early on. I think 1989, we saw our first, uh, uh, was a uh, uh, university hospital at UCLA. Uh, one of the surgeons, or one of the radiologists, talked to us about uh, printing some, uh, some uh, uh, skeletal parts. And it was successful and kind of just uh, went from there. And it seems like the sky's the limit. Chuck, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Chuck Hall is co-founder and chief technology officer of 3D Systems, based in Rock Hill, South Carolina. The company's new healthcare facility is in Littleton. Hall is considered the father of 3D printing. Our 3D printing show continues with the story of Sonic the Kitten and how art students fixed his leg. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel.
A kitten named Sonic was found hobbling the streets of Denver. He had a deformed front leg, and he was taken to the Denver Animal Shelter, where students from the Art Institute of Colorado made him a 3D prosthetic. Greg Harvey oversaw the project at the Art Institute. He joins me as our look at 3D printing in Colorado continues. Welcome. Hello. Sonic was born with a congenital orthopedic deformity in his right front leg. Essentially, he's missing a key part there of a bone. Greg, how did the Art Institute of Colorado get involved with making prosthetics for kittens? I was uh, at the facility uh, discussing a public art project with the director. And as I passed by the surgical unit, I asked what they did with animals with particular orthopedic needs, and they really didn't have an answer. I said, by the way, we have some capabilities, and that's how it all began. So completely random. You walked in doing something completely different, and then you... Exactly. So I saw an opportunity to kind of apply some of our technology, and we uh, made that connection. So how did the veterinarians react at the shelter? They were very excited because they have so many animals that sometimes they, they can't provide what they really want them to have. So uh, we had the ability to, you know, take Sonic on and hopefully give him a better life. And using 3D printing, you created his first prosthetic and it was fitted in May. How's he doing today? He is doing quite well. Uh, he's on version number 15. 15. 15. So he grows at a tremendous rate. So it's usually about a weekly uh, turnaround to get a new one. Oh, so you have to create one because he's growing and it has to, it, it's exactly. getting bigger. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, as, as that uh, process evolves, uh, we've experimented with, is it bigger? Is it smaller? So we're, we're learning every time we interact with him. So have veterinarians seen a benefit of making the 3D prosthetic for Sonic? I mean, how is his quality of life now as opposed to maybe having his leg amputated? Well, um, in his particular case, the amputation might be uh, a surgical risk. Um, in the situation he has now, if he doesn't use the prosthetic and walks on his limb, he will basically create a sore on his, uh, basically his wrist or elbow, and that has the potential of infection. So it, it's just one of those things where it would kind of create almost like an ulcer situation. And you brought one of these prosthetics into the studio here. It's, it's white and it's kind of here. It's very light plastic. Uh, so you have to make so many of these. How does this actually work? How do you make one? Well, basically, the very first step was to evaluate uh, Sonic's situation. So we went to the shelter, tried to get to know him, understand his problem. And then we used a basically an aluminum mesh to wrap his paw and basically get a, a rough... Uh, proximity of, of the limb. And then we took a few critical measurements as far as uh, uh, diameter and length and just started from there. So how do your students approach a project like this? It's not art. It's it's essentially science. It's medical technology. Here. Exactly. So so what we teach is, is what we call industrial design, where basically we solve problems. And the idea is that we use a creative process, problem solving, and combine that with technology to hopefully come up with a solution. And how long does it take to, to actually print something like this out? I would say those print out in probably about uh, two and a half hours. And it's it's roughly L-shaped, and so the leg would fit in the top here and have a little, and there's a little rubber thing I think yes, would go on the exactly. bottom. Yes, exactly. So yes, correct. Walk around. Uh-huh. And we're still experimenting with that shape as well. And, and how is Sonic dealing with all this? It's, 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 he, he, I can't say he loved it at first, but he's uh, his adopted parents are doing a very good job of providing kind of basically physical therapy for him. So Getting, he's been adopted. And yes, and he's, he's a very happy cat. He gets along with other cats in the house. He sleeps a lot. He's very energetic, but uh, I, I think he's, he's going to be okay. 
This has been going on since April. Uh, yes. What about the cost of printing, you know, 16, 17, 18 of these as, as he grows up? Well, the irony is that part right there is probably about $2 worth of plastic. Okay. So it's, it's more of the labor, the, the time involved in adjusting the CAD program. And so to print one of these out, you say it takes a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. but I, I, have you gotten better as, as the time goes yes, on? Yes, they are, they are getting much more efficient. Yes, they, they're coming out much better. Uh, we're getting to know the machine because every 3D printer is going to react differently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as far as how you uh, create the part within the software, we're, we're kind of getting better every time we do it. I've heard your students calling this a new revolution. Where does the industry, especially the art industry, go from here? Mm-hmm. Because you're showing that you can kind of meld medic you know, technology with, with art. Well, I think, I think it's pretty amazing because when you can combine the creative with the, I guess, the engineering and provide solutions, that to me is why I design. I, I, you know, I think that's the best job in the world when you could actually see the benefit of what you do while being creative, while inventing, while solving problems. Now, is there going to be uh, more of this at your institution? We've uh, established a pretty good relationship with the, uh, the uh, shelter, so I would imagine there'll be more opportunities to help. And, and I guess the next step is, I mean, do you then create a class for this, for art students who want to maybe work in prosthetics? Uh, we have some students that are very engaged in that, and we actually have graduates who do that predominantly high-end in Florida. Really? Yeah. Now, it was interesting in the green room, we have a bunch of guests who are all 3D yes. printing related, and you all were talking with each other, and yes. you all seem, it seems like a very small community of, of, of people. Well, it's, it's, it is and it isn't. And the neat thing is, uh, with the gentleman I was, I was speaking with, we already see where this is going. We want to plant seeds in the schools where we're not only providing kind of the, not, or the technology and how to use it, but also how to apply the design process. And that's what I really push. What do you mean, how to apply that design process? Um, so a lot of people could take apart and say, well, I want to make a skull. Well, that's great. I would rather have you say, well, let's design something. Let's solve a problem. So let's uh, look at that problem. Let's sketch. Let's think about it. Let's collaborate. Let's make some low-fidelity models. Uh, sometimes when we start this process, instead of going right to the print, we would make something out of cardboard or foam core and just really kind of get a tactile you, you can feel it. You exactly. can touch it. You yeah, can look at it. You get a it. visceral reaction. And that's really important before we invest the time to build something in the computer. Now that Sonic is relatively well known, uh, yeah. are, are students coming to you being like, I really want to work on this project. I really want to work doing this. Yeah, we, we have some people that are pretty, pretty excited about it. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Greg Harvey is a member of the faculty at the Art Institute of Colorado. He and his students helped design a prosthetic leg for Sonic the Kitten. Just ahead, how 3D printing is helping children who are blind take on the world. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. What children's books did you grow up with? Goodnight Moon, maybe Harold and the Purple Crayon? Would your memories of the book be the same if you couldn't see the pictures? Researchers at CU Boulder want children who are blind to experience this literature, too. The solution? 3D printing, which is the focus of today's show. Tom Yeh leads the Tactical Picture Books Project. He's an assistant professor of computer science. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. You make tactile books for kids between three and six years old, and your first prototype was Goodnight Moon, and I I see you've brought that in today. Uh, Can I take a look at it? Sure. 
so it is a thick book. You also actually brought the 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 the, the, the normal book in a sense of Goodnight Moon, which is which is a cardboard uh, book here that many people remember. Now this is thick and it's felt and it's a little bit heavy and it it has pictures that you can touch. Essentially, they're 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 three dimensional objects. So like there there's a teddy bear on the first page here. Now a sighted child may know what a teddy bear is and feels like. How does this translate to someone who is who is hard of sight or is blind? So for for children who are blind, they cannot rely on their vision. Mm-hmm. There are other modalities they can rely on, such as hearing, and most uh, also more importantly, touch for exploring some sort of uh, picture like object. And so we just sit here in the studio, and we have in this. Green room, and I can describe to you what the green room is like. There's going, there's a telephone there, so there's some microphone, there's a computer. But sorry for those who are listening, you're not here. You can't really physically see it. So it's just like blankets. They they can't really see the big green room in this wonderful book of Good Night Moon. They can't really see. There's also a telephone on the table. They can hear about well, cow jumping over the moon, jumping over the moon. So with thinking, so. I remember hearing about a research done by some researchers that they are trying to take scientific diagram and use 3D printing as a technology to ask the question, is there any way to allow those scientific diagrams to jump out of the pages that could become something students can touch and students can feel? And in a way to explore the diagram and actually learn understanding the concept underlying those diagrams. And they made me start to think whether maybe I can apply that to books like Night Moon. When the kids hear about cow jumping over the moon, what if the cow can actually jump out of the page the kids can actually explore and touch and feel? And if they could, if people can use 3D printer to make di- scientific diagram accessible, maybe could it be possible for us to use 3D printer to make pictures accessible too? And for the kids who that cannot see, they can touch and explore. When they hear stories sitting on the parent's lap, they could ask questions about, oh, this, what does the moon look like? Explore touching the pages just like a sighted kid would do. And there's also Braille in, in this book, and it says, good night bears, good night chairs. And on the next page, you can actually feel the bears and the chairs. And it continues, good night kittens, and there are kittens, and then there's mittens that you can feel. I understand you got the idea for this project after visiting a school for the blind in Maryland. This was about four years ago. What happened there? So what happened there, this is what I actually heard about the school, the, the need to make textbook accessible. And they, they let, uh, the, so there are lots of uh, diagrams, as I was uh, referring to earlier mm-hmm. that in the textbook in the, about geometry and algebra imagine y equals x squared is a parabola and what does it look like for a sighted kid that can see that diagram in the textbook for for kids who are blind and they rely on touch so there are some effort to make those graphics accessible by making them tactile and so that's what we I first learned about this problem of accessibility of diagrams and graph for kids with visual impairment. And we're talking about kids in the middle and high school in the, at the school age. And so that served as like a seed that was sown in my heart when it was one day then I started to look for ways to make some contribution to this cause. And then I just came across 
children's book as just another area that has not received a lot of attention. And I thought about maybe that's something we could start could, making could contributions. On. And so how does Braille fit into this? I guess because the mm-hmm. children are younger, they, they, they have not yet mastered Braille. Right. Is that so correct? we target the – so we thought there's not enough attention to pay to this uh, this population for kids really young. I had a kid at that age myself too, so I – you understand. Yeah, I understand bit, yeah. that what how enjoyable it is to have been able to read any book with my kids together, and so at the time, and my my son at two and three, and he he doesn't read any English, doesn't understand anything, but that that all the children's book has English in it. So it's about experience exposure. So about that providing some kind of opportunity to have experience to things that they later on have to learn, but they might not be old enough to actually pick it up yet. So by working with, we didn't quite understand this, but we have been understanding now because by working with partners in there are a couple of great organizations we have a fortune to work with in Colorado. There's this Anchor Center for Blind Children and Colorado Center for Blind and Colorado Talking Book Library. This offer gave us a lot of advice about how to approach this problem. We thought, and they all told us the importance of having Braille in this book, even though we do not expect that you can read them, the but then it, it gives the opportunity to be to have this aspiration to learn about that, to become curious. This is uh, also is a bridge. Just the fact that the pages have to be bound into like a book, also another example of being able to flip through the pages, have like TikTok experiences. They might not, they might not related to their actual comprehension of the story, but right. related to the development of a literacy skill as they get older. How, how much experience with, with all of this that you've done to to create these books? Did you ever have any experience prior to this with three D printing? At the time, I was as new to three D printing as a lot of people at four years ago, and yeah. I have a very a lot of misconception about three D printer about oh, it's just like laser printer, you print a button and the print comes and then it out goes, and, yeah. it, and it goes. But it turns out it's it's still a developing technology. It has gone a long way from what it used to be ten years ago. It's a lot more accessible and cheap, affordable. This that to make us to take advantage of this, but it's still a lot. It's a learning curve that we all have to overcome, and. It's exciting because now we can start thinking about printing something completely personalized and unique and special and customized for that individual, for child. That individual child. Because they've had the opportunity to create a template, essentially, of your own and then print it out your, yourself. Exactly. And then when you, make, uh, when you make some changes, you could just press the button again and just print it out without having to worry about how many copies you had to make to justify your cost. You also brought, it looks like, uh, another project. It's based on the biblical story of Noah's Ark. Do, do you ever incorporate Braille into the books to help tell the story besides you, you do, but I also think that it's very picture-centric, very photo-centric. So it's interesting you mentioned Noah's Ark, and yeah. people ask why do we choose this book? So that is actually not picked by me, even though I'm kind of like a director of this project. It was actually picked by a student who was an intern in our lab over the summer. And she wanted to make a book and I just gave her a freedom to pick her favorite book. And she picked this one because she's Noah's a devoted Christian, Noah's Ark. And she used a computer program to design this. Now we started to become a selection in our library that the family can choose. 
And we can even work with a family to provide them with a menu, kind of like uh, when you buy a car, you can pick the do options. You yeah. Do you, how many, how big does do you want the sun to be? How many camels? How what kind of animal do you want on the page? Or more importantly, what kind of braille text you want to put on the on on each page? We're able to offer the customization service. Completely customizable because of the three D printing. Completely, yes, exactly. So we're not talking about cookie cutter anymore. Imagine you have to make one copy of the cookie. We will never buy a cookie cutter. It doesn't. It, it's not worth it. But with a 3D printer, it actually allows us to think about making a special, custom, unique book for each individual. No, so starting with Noah Sark, we're able to make book that in such a way that the next book is always different from the previous book because every kid is different from the other kid that's in your neighbor. So is and also deserves such a special attention. So I my in my positions, I feel like O3D printing really offer a new opportunity to think about publishing. Think about whether there's a way publish publication can be tangible at the same time is completely customized, personalized, and unique. So do you believe that one day everyone will have a 3D printer and you can print these books out and you can maybe go to a supermarket mm-hmm. and, and print out a book there that's customized? So I. I know people taking different positions about this, so I would love to answer in a slightly different way of thinking about if that's the case, that it, regardless whether the print is at home or in the places like Walmart, the question is then how about the design aspect? How do is it possible for people to make become easy? It's become easy enough. Everybody, kids at a young age, can actually design something there on their own so and then go to friendly. the 3D printer. So, 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 so as in as CU, we're also spending a lot of effort on asking that question to how can we make this design production process a lot more user friendly, video editing. Interview has been so hard in the past, but now just look at the YouTube because of the, the revolution has catching up, technology yeah. is catching up, making video editing so much more accessible. And then just look at the explosion of creativity. And if a 3D printing can, something like that can happen in 3D printing, I think that the future is going to be awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Tom Ye leads the Tactile Picture Books Project out of CU Boulder. Up next, CD, or 3D printers aren't yet in every home right now, but one leveling company is trying to change that. Our 3D printing show continues. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're hearing all about 3D printers today, so will the technology be in our homes? Our next guest, Harris Kenny with Loveland-based Aleph Objects, thinks so. The company builds 3D printers small enough to be used in the home and easy enough for most people to operate. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. We've heard about all these big world applications uh, today for 3D printers, but you're saying that there are some home applications for 3D printers as well. We're finding that people are using 3D printers at home to do things as hobbies that most people do as professions. So they'll spend a weekend playing around with their 3D printer, but if you look at the actual process and what they're actually doing, they're engineering, they're designing, they're playing pretend architect, and and so you're seeing a a distribution of very advanced processes and capabilities right in someone's garage or in their living room or in their basement. Give me some examples of of some of the the projects that you're seeing with your, your printers being used. Some of the most exciting projects are where people are taking something that they have today and then modifying it slightly. So cell phone cases are one of the most common things that people will print first. We all have them. I have one right here. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. You've got a $600 computer sitting in your pocket and there's it's one of the first things people think, oh yeah, I could 3D print that. So a lot of people start there and then they'll pick up on that based on hobbies or interests they may have, like making costumes around Halloween and things like that. You have a whole box of, of 3D printed uh, things. What are some of the examples in that that you can show me? Well, the first thing that people print is something like a, a, phone, a phone case. The next thing is they look to art. So I've got a an object here. It's called the Twisted Gear Vase. And it's just a beautiful material. It's, it's printed of a translucent blue material, and it has lots of uh, sharp lines along the edges, so it catches light, and it's really pretty. And so artwork like that, more contemporary artwork, but also classical artwork. I've got a print of the Woman of Willendorf, well, oh, one of the yeah. most iconic pieces of art from the ancient world that was shared freely online, and, someone, and you can download this and print it and have it in your desk or in your office. And it's interesting. So that is very thick. This, this model here is, is very thick looking, but then you've got this kind of plastic uh, vase, which is very thin and delicate. Is that something that, that you know, 3D printers have the capability to do, to be both delicate but yet very also uh, uh, hard and firm? When you're using a 3D printer, you have this dashboard of, of design choices you can make about what material you can use, how quickly it prints, uh, the type of uh, the thickness of the layers and things like that. So you can achieve lots of different types of objects. You can make lots of different types of things with 3D printers. And what about in the next few years? Is there something that we can't yet produce at home uh, but might be able to in the near future? Well, the exciting thing about 3D printing is that it's hard to predict what's going to happen next because you have this ability to make things being distributed. And so the question is, well, what are people going to make with them next? And and that's what we don't know. Books like the Tactile Book mm-hmm. Project, where someone never would have guessed that, but you've got a young graduate student uh, who has an interest and all of a sudden there's this explosion in creative activity around accessibility for books. And so I think that's the most exciting thing about 3D printing is we don't know. And the culture of the technology and of industry is sharing and collaborative. And so what we do know is that when people come up with something cool, it's very likely they're going to share it online and other people can learn from it. And we also heard, of course, the prosthetic leg for that cat, that, that, that there's definitely some, some collaboration there between the, the medicine world, the veterinary world, as well as the, the artistic world. What about the cost of these things? You know, one of the printers your company makes is called the Lulzbot Mini. It's roughly the size of a, of a small microwave. I think that's about correct. So so larger than your typical home printer. We did a little shopping online and found some small 3D printers can be as cheap as about 300 bucks, and some over $2,000. Uh, it still seems a little out of reach, to be honest, for the average homeowner. The machines are priced almost like the computer market. Hmm. Um, So, you know, you have these trade-offs between price and quality and performance. But what we're finding is that for a few thousand dollars, that's where we're focused. Uh, We're focused on high quality and premium technical support. Uh, So that's our business model is we think that folks do want a helping hand when they get the machine. And they're going to have questions and they're going to want to work with our community. Um, But... The nice thing is that schools and libraries and hackerspaces, community spaces, are investing in the technology so people can use the printers. Uh, There's also a site called 3D Hubs where there's over, I think, over 20,000 people that have 3D printers have listed their profile online and said, hey, if you want to print something, I can print it for you. You don't need to buy a machine on your own. Harris, you keep mentioning community and hacker spaces and things like that. And, and I have to note that your company is, is open sourced. Can you explain to listeners what that means? The idea behind a free software, open source hardware company is we respect user freedom. Anybody can see how our 3D printer works. They can see the files. 
They can understand how the actual technology works, and then they can make modifications and share that with other people. So, you know, most people are not hackers. Most people are not writing code uh, to to reprogram a 3D printer, Um, but they can understand it. And so what that means is that we've got super users and folks that are really excited about the technology and they share, and it makes our products better in a whole bunch of different ways. So even if, you know, someone doesn't think they need open source, um, open source technology runs the things like stock exchanges, fortune 500 airlines, nuclear submarines. So it's a very powerful technology sitting right on your desktop and you benefit from it, even if you may not think it, you need it right away. When someone buys a 3D printer for their home, can you walk me through the steps of actually making something that a person can use? I'm thinking of a printer. I put a piece of paper in, I I hit the button, and a copy comes out. But this is totally different. It is. The the biggest thing that a 3D printer needs is a model. Um, And so a 3D model is created in software like Blender, FreeCAD, or OpenSCAD. And, you know, either you create it yourself or you can download it from the Internet again. Um, so there's a lot of people sharing online, and, and the birth of the desktop industry was made on sharing. Um, coming up this September, it will be 10 years since the first 3D printer printed its own part as a part of the RepRap project. So we have basically a decade now, this decade experiment, in saying, hey, let's make models, let's make projects, share them online. Today, there's hundreds of thousands of desktop 3D printers like this around the world. Um, so either make it yourself or find someone that's willing to share it with you, and then you can just hit print and few hours later, a few minutes later, depending on the object, you can have something on your desk. But it seems more than that because you also have these filaments that you use. It's not paper. It's it's plastic or, or other material that seems difficult for someone to use. That's a great point. So I've got a few different examples in here of different objects. Uh, I'm holding now a tire. Uh, it's got a, a hard plastic interior, but the outside is a material called NinjaFlex, uh-huh. and it's urethane. So there is, as folks get a little more uh, advanced in their understanding of 3D printing, you have other choices available, like what material do you want to print out of? Yeah. Um, so a lot of hard plastics, but also rubbery materials, natural blends like wood and metal. And I see this could naturally lead. It's a small, it's a small tire, almost to a you know for for a rather large remote control vehicle that they, maybe somebody could make a three D toy or something like that. And, and I see you've got other stuff in there that could possibly be that a toy that someone could design. Absolutely. So we see we've got. Well, you're going to hear the noise of all these little things bumping (laughs) against each other, but there's all sorts of different types of things you could print. Um, I've got a phone case here that I was talking about earlier, but um, you've also got practical toys and then home prototypes. We've got a a thing here. It's it's from the Enable Project. It's a hand. It's a hand. Yeah, it's about, I would say, six inches long, and it's designed for a child to use, and the whole idea behind the project was uh, prosthetics that you could develop. Um, without having to pay the expensive price of normal medical devices. Interesting. And, you know, so it's colored bright green. It's almost like the Hulk colors. Yeah. And so the lines between functional and artwork and fun blur with 3D printing. It, 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 you, you're bridging the physical and digital worlds and you're bridging fun and functional things. So is this the future then? Will everyone have one of these in their homes in the next 10 years that they can do something like this? Create the tactile books like we heard about or create these toys or fixes for their computers? Whether or not people have machines in their homes, I think everybody is going to be affected by 3D printing more and more over the next 10 years. And I think the access is increasing dramatically. So I think 3D printing is definitely going to be part of the future, um, but it's just a tool. So in order for 3D printing to keep developing, 
software needs to keep developing. Schools and educators need to empower and equip students how to use it. So it's really a whole bunch of different things need to grow together. But I think that 3D printing is definitely here to stay. But I mean, the cost must have to go down. Is that is that something that's feasible? Or we always have these pro- you know these computers and these these printers are at least you know thousands of dollars. I think you'll always have a range. I mean, there's machines that are over a million dollars for companies that are doing aerospace. So I think you always have a range because there's different types of problems that people are solving. Harris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Harris Kenny is VP of Marketing for Aleph Objects in Loveland. You can see photos of the objects he brought and printed later today at CPRnews.org. NASA's MAVEN mission to Mars, based at CU Boulder, studies the red planet's atmosphere, climate, liquid water, and whether people could one day live there. If that happens, one team of designers thinks they can build a 3D printer that could turn the planet's liquid water into ice and print habitats. Jeffrey Montez is one of the designers of the Mars Ice House. He joined me from New York. Jeffrey, uh, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. NASA awarded three groups $50,000 in the first stage of this competition last year. And the goal was to take advantage of 3D printing to imagine what habitats on Mars might look like. What does your design look like? Well, from uh, from the distance of the Martian horizon, it looks uh, a bit like a section of a cone or it's been referred to as a shark fin or a, a pointy dome. And it's, you know, it, the idea is that it's actually translucent, which was the sort of original motivation behind using ice. Ice is, a, is one of the most effective shields for radiation. Uh, the kinds of radiation that would actually be really harmful to humans uh, outside of the planet Earth. And your design also mentions using the see-through properties of ice to tap into Mars's circadian cycle. What do you mean by that? To be able to tap into Mars' circadian cycle is seems very beneficial to the inhabitants. And actually, Mars's day is only 40 minutes longer than ours, which is an incredible coincidence, um, first of all, but also something that you definitely want to take advantage of. Um, I mean, most of the Mars uh, habitation schemes you've ever seen, literally all of them, you know, are, are being shown as sort of bunker-like uh, shelters or sort of like metal cans uh, with, with perhaps a small window, and there's really no connection to to the environment. And like it is it is a new world. It literally is a new world. It's not to be taken lightly. And all of this can be created by a 3D printer. How can a 3D printer use ice to create a building material? Well, ice is an interesting thing on Mars. Um, you know, everyone, everyone understands that Mars is cold. So you can already imagine that ice and water are going to be the two states used here. As soon as you deposit your water, it, it would be like this icicle extruder. You'd essentially be building with ice at the end of the day. This machine that you would design would be shot into space. It would travel to Mars, and then it alone would essentially unpack itself, find the water, and, and construct this habitat for future astronauts coming to the planet. Yeah, the the infrastructure 
that happens before this thing actually lands on the planet is is vast. The whole idea is that it's it's like a seed and it and it grows into a tree um, with with minimal sort of on-site humans and and the humans do arrive to it um, sort of ready to go. How long would these ice houses last? I mean, would you have to rebuild them over time, and and, and could you build them across many parts of the planet? Well, that's that's a really good question. Um, we we recently went to uh, NASA's Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia, as part of a kind of consulting team of designers um, on their own sort of version of an ice habitat, and um, we learned some really great things about how ice behaves and. One of them is that when you create a huge mass of ice that's structural, it's a building material, you end up with a, a very resilient mass of, of matter that is actually able to survive temperature swings really well. Hmm. The encouraging thing we learned is that it can be resilient to many different climates on Mars. So it, it will last as long as, as a, the site where it is allows it to. How close is your project then to reality? <laughs> well, NASA NASA has their own scale for technology readiness. It's called TRL technology readiness level, and I and I think it goes up to seven. And I think we're we're probably at a one. <laughs> Jeff, uh, thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Jeffrey Montez is part of a joint team from Space Exploration and Architecture and Clouds AO. The group won NASA's 3D-printed Habitat Challenge for Mars. See a video of their ice house at cprnews.org. CU's MAVEN mission to Mars was just approved for a two-year extended mission that runs through September 2018. And that's our 3D show. But before we go, readers of Westward voted the Colorado Springs band Eros and the Eschaton the best local pop group of 2015. Since then, the duo has grown to a five-piece band. Their sophomore album, Weight of Matter, is due out this month. Here they are with the track Helicopter in the CPR Performance Studio. Eschaton performing Helicopter. CPR's Open Air presents the band's album release show August 27th at Larimer Lounge in Denver. Thanks to my audio engineer, John Zuko, my director and producer, Andrew Dukakis, producers Stephanie Wolf, Anthony Cotton, and Michelle P. Fulcher. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. <laughs>